Hello fellow explorers and welcome to the Psychic Jungle. This is the podcast of Alternative Transmissions. these subjects with an open mind you make up your own mind you decide what you think we'll just present the evidence here today at secret himalayas 2 we're going to look at the evidence put forward for the secret masters of the himalayas are there such ascended beings or is it just a fanciful tale well we'll let you decide here is episode 2 secret himalayas ascended schools and masters george ivanovich gurdjieff was born circa 1870, in the Transcaucasian region. His father, a Greek carpenter called Johannes Georgiades, and his mother, who was Armenian, they grew up together as a family in Kars, or Gars, a city on the Turkish-Armenian border, which was at the time part of the Tsarist Empire. His Russian Orthodox education meant that he was conversant in Russian, but Kars being a border town meant that the young boy came into contact with diverse ethnic and cultural groups, and as such he picked up several tongues in his time there. He read science and acquired an inquisitive mind tutored by a man called Dean Borsch, a fan friend. According to his own biography, Meetings with the Remarkable Men, later made into a film by Peter Brook in the 70s, Gurdjieff travelled extensively throughout Central Asia, India, Persia and Egypt. Due to his tendency to obscure the direct meaning with allegory and his overriding sense of humour at the reader's expense, the story is not always regarded as strictly factual. He certainly was never fully forthcoming on the source of his wisdom and teacher. Gurdjieff joined many secret societies, arcane groups interested in ancient wisdom and philosophy, but gradually came to settle on the idea that science and religion could not satisfy his questions. During his travels with a friend called Pogosian, the pair began to excavate the ruins of Ani, the ancient capital of Armenia, where they soon uncovered correspondence relating to a mystery school called the Samun Brotherhood. The evidence came in the form of some decaying parchments written by a certain Father Aram. The Samun had existed as far back as ancient Babylon. Gurdjieff began his search for the Samun, but during his travels he discovered an ancient map of pre-Sand Egypt, in 1887, he temporarily abandoned his search for the Samun to look into this fragment of the ultimate truth. The Sahara hadn't always been an arid, 
desert. It wasn't really until 3000 BC that this occurred. Therefore, the map of pre-sand Egypt represented an age before that time, so it was older than 3000 BC. Some further information on pre-sand Egypt comes from Ospensky, a pupil of Gurdjieff, who said that he gathered from his teacher that Christianity itself was not so much a teaching of Christ as such, but was taken from pre-sand Egypt, an Egypt before the one we presently know as the ancient Egypt. Some studies have concluded that ancient Egypt as we know it inherited much of its civilization and didn't actually build, therefore belonging to a much earlier age such as the building of the Sphinx, which is believed to be part of pre-Sand Egypt and therefore much, much older than ancient Egypt, but had inherited their civilization from an earlier time. Gurdjieff said of Christian ritual that the holidays' rites symbols had their meanings, but these had been forgotten, as mentioned in the first episode that we talked about uh, Tibet. The inner meaning elapsed due to time and became exoteric, or more accurately lifeless, devoid as they are of continued supporting energies of the harmonious circle of humanity, which of course pump into and keep alive esoteric ideas. Gurdjieff had a distinct advantage in this arena, in that his own father was an Ashok, a word used to describe in Asia Minor poet or storyteller. The Ashok often recounted by rote the ancient oral tradition in their community, sang songs in competitions, recited poetry, or recalled myths, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, stretching back millennia. Each of these stories, myths, poems, were passed down generation to generation, unchanged, perhaps, before the Great Flood. The Ashok's role in society, similar to that of the Bard in the West, in that he occupied a traditional role within the community to recount the shared cultural knowledge passed down from one age to another. Gurdjieff drawing upon these fragments of knowledge and other cross-cultural elements. Gurdjieff gradually developed a deep-seated yearning for the esoteric and believed that life was more meaningful than otherwise supposed. Within him grew a fire for a deeper meaning and purpose in life. Due to the impact of his father's philosophy on him and Ashok knowledge, we learn a little about Gurdjieff's own evaluation of the ancient wisdom of time past. He said, I was struck by the fact that this legend had been handed down by Ashok from generation to generation for thousands of years, and yet had reached our day almost unchanged. After this occurrence, a result that crystallised in me a spiritualizing factor enabling me to comprehend that which usually appears incomprehensible. I often regretted having begun too late to give the legends of antiquity the immense significance that I now understand that they really have." Unquote. During the period after 1887, Gurdjieff travelled extensively. It may be here at this time that he became involved in the intrigues of the great game politics to finance his travels. He appears to be involved in many questionable business activities, according to his accounts, although never admitted to spying. He joined forces with an organisation called the Seekers After Truth, led by a Russian nobleman, Prince Lobodetsky. The Seekers After Truth travelled singly or in pairs, 
sometimes organised expeditions in search for arcane knowledge, and left no stone unturned in their quests. It's been said that Hitler's own mentor, Horshaufer, the father of geopolitics, was also a member of the group. Once again he searched out the Samoon Brotherhood, during a sandstorm to underscore the clarity and perspective of the higher centres within us. So again this was using an allegory. Likewise, his accounts of being hit by stray bullets on at least three occasions have been described by seasoned Gurdjieffians, such as the late Bert Sharp, as a reference to the three stages of initiation towards awakening. So this autobiographical account has to be treated carefully and not taken literally by any means. However, there is no doubt from many eyewitness accounts gained from those who met with him that Gurdjieff possessed extraordinary powers and perceptions that set him apart from other men, which lent credence to the fact that he was privy to secret knowledge. After an arduous twelve-day journey by horseback and donkey, often blindfolded so the location was not compromised, traversing dangerous mountain terrain, his guides brought him to the legendary Salmung Monastery. He crossed a perilous rope bridge across a deep, yawning ravine, and on the other side was invited into the secret place as a pupil. Once inside the monastery, he discovered to his surprise that his dear friend, the prince from the Seekers After Truth, was already there. It is said that he took discovery of this place in 1897 or 1898, about the same time that he came into contact with the Tsarist Buddhist emissary, Argan Dorzhev mentioned in episode one of this little series. Inside the Samoon monastery, Gurdjieff was initiated into the ancient mysteries which had come from the times of ancient Babylon, circa 2500 BC, as spoken of in the letters of Father Aram. The monastery was located in Turkestan, which is a huge area encompassing the shores of the Caspian Sea, Aral Sea, Lake Bolkash and lies between Siberia, Tibet, India, Afghanistan and Iran, which was Persia at the time. Parts of Turkestan lie within the roof of the world that we've already mentioned in episode one of this series. Samun is an interesting word. It is of Persian origin and its etymology can mean three things. The first being bees, because of course they produce honey. This was a direct allegorical meaning to the function of the secret brotherhood and the transmission of their teachings. Bees store honey while the school stores knowledge to be released at the right time. A second meaning for this word arrives in the Persian translation given to us by the word sar, meaning head, literally in terms of leader or distinguished one. Man is the Persian word for the trait of hereditary, of family or race. Author and student of Gurdjieff, J.G. Bennett, said of the word, I quote, The combination Samun would mean that the chief repository of a tradition, he said. A third, slightly more obscure meaning is he who preserves the Zoroastrian teachings. Inside the monastery, Gurdjieff relates how he is introduced to carefully preserved sacred dances taught by the means of a life-size wooden stick man. The temple dancers were said to form the cosmic language, demonstrating the primordial principles of life. Here, 
he found the symbol of the sun-moon, the nine-pointed enneagram, which demonstrated the cosmic laws of seven and three. Both of these laws are said to govern the universe. Much of Gurdjieff's later teachings are directly related to the understanding of the Enneagram, the Law of Three, conscious, and the Law of Seven, mechanical. Samun had therefore delivered what it promised, holding the keys to complete spiritual transformation. Both Gurdjieff and the Prince had dreamed of finding everything, and they had done at the Samun Monastery. To this day, arguments have raged as to whether the whole story of the Samun is allegorical or factual, or a mixture of the two, to obscure and protect the teachings. Even Gurdjieff's own pupils are not entirely sure on this point. From the few definitive answers he gave, we only know that the Sun Moon Brotherhood had at least two centres, one called the Olman Monastery, based in the northern slopes of the Himalayas, where the prince spent his final days, and the other monastery being a twelve-day trek from Bukhara the second unnamed monastery being the place where Gurdjieff and the prince met as guest of the Samun. Its location, according to J.G. Bennett, who studied with Gurdjieff, is in the mountains near Tashkent. Coming to John Godolphin Bennett, J.G. Bennett, he was an extraordinary man by any standards, born into a good family, was educated at King's College, London. He was born in June 8, 1897, and went on to the Royal Military Academy to study engineering. He was a gifted linguist, speaking 50 languages, he became a scientist who specialised in coal fossil fuels. Something of a mathematician, and one of his own personal achievements, uh, he became head of MI5 in British Constantinople, Ankara, as it is known now, by the age of 21. During the First World War, he was called upon to serve in the Royal Engineers, and while in France, he returned home wounded after being in a coma. His early life, immediately after the war, speaks of tense, introspective desperation, his father died on the way to his wedding on Armistice Day, 1918. His autobiography, Witness, he describes completing his Turkish course at the School of African and Oriental Studies, London, only two months later, being dispatched to Salonika, Greece, and then on to Turkey. Here he got on and excelled in his position as uh, Assistant Liaison Officer at the War Office. Due to the politics of post-war Turkey, there was a great fear of a Bolshevik plot particularly those stirring up jihads within the British Empire. Millions of Muslims resided in huge swathes of uh, British possessions around the world, and anyone seen as fanning the flames of insurrection had to be investigated. Bennett slowly drifted into the spy business, and his first job was checking out the Mevlevi Sufi order to assess the risks. To the layman, the Mevlevi order are the white-clothed whirling dervishes now seen performing spinning dances for tourists. The order was founded by the mystical uh, Sufi poet Jaladin Rumi in 1273. Rumi was remembered by his supporters as probably one of the nearest underneath pantheon of important people in Islam as being one of the closest underneath Muhammad himself and was known as the Lord. Rather than uncover any plots, Bennett encountered the Mevlevis one Thursday and joined their ceremony and listened to their music and prayers, which overwhelmed him with emotion. Without any reason, he wept, and then he noticed others also sobbing at the music. He's invited to attend again, and so began his first contact with Sufism. A lifelong journey had begun. The dervishes talked to him and answered all his questions about life. He soon encountered another tradition, 
called the Howling Dervishes in another part of Turkey. These intoned the names of Allah, grasping at their beards and bringing themselves into an ecstatic state. Then a man, in nothing more than a loincloth, began to beat himself bloody with a chain. Spikes were driven through his cheeks as he continued to chant. At the climax of this ceremony, the elderly man in the loincloth lay down as two mullahs placed a razor-sharp curved scimitar across his chest and stood upon it. They shouted Allah Akbar as everyone waited for the inevitable slicing of the supine figure. As he took the weight off the elderly man, he took the sword and demonstrated that his body was completely unmarked by the weapon. Those present remained in transfixed silence, highly elated by the death-defying exhibition of faith. Bennett began to develop a deep yearning for the spiritual, which was to grow into a lifelong quest for the truth. During 1920, via a contact who had similar interests in spiritual matters, Bennett was introduced to George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. The meeting took place in Constantinople, today's Istanbul, and was to become the most important one of any meeting for Bennett, who later said that he had never met a man who understood him more than he understood himself. Their conversations were conducted in Turkish, a language which Bennett was conversant with. Although Gurdjieff left a riveting impression on the young intelligence officer, he was too busy with intelligence matters to commit to the discipline that Gurdjieff was, to quote, probably likely to demand. He did continue contact and visited Gurdjieff at his Institute for Harmonious Development in Fontainebleau, Paris in 1923. Gurdjieff set up a private institute to showcase his ideas, variously called the system or the work, sometimes known as the fourth way. Bennett spent three months there in the summer and was greatly impressed by what he saw. At the very first moment he was shown into the drawing room at the Priory by Madame de Hartmann, a long-time student of Gurdjieff's system. Bennett to again be greatly affected by his Russian master. Speaking in Turkish once again, Gurdjieff continued the conversation from exactly the same subject and same point he'd broken off two years before in Constantinople. Gurdjieff told him, Emotions and his body were asleep. Gurdjieff's recommendation to Bennett was to separate his body from himself and then his emotions would follow. Soon he was set to work in an unfamiliar setting of the scullery, scrubbing floors, serving food and cleaning pots and pans. Then he went on to learn about hard physical labour such as sawing trees and breaking rocks, all long twelve-hour days that Bennett was unused to. Discussions, music, group exercise, postures, lectures all followed the day's exhausting work. Bennett fasted and observed how others at the Priory also saw firsthand how Gurdjieff was able to create conditions of extraordinary tension necessary to work on oneself and practically experience and see one's own limitations. Bennett saw the mask slip as raw emotion or naked essence began to overtake one's day-to-day -day persona at the Priory, bringing forth what a person really was. Orage, a famous uh, newspaper editor of the time, who had come to talk to Gurdjieff, but soon found that that is not how things worked at the Priory. Orage was never seen the end of a shovel or anything like that, soon found himself digging a garden. Before long, he was tanned, rippled in muscles, and had calloused hands like a fisherman or labourer. Bennett observed, people changed here under Gurdjieff. It was not all hard work, though. Jokes were played, and the famous Toast of Idiots was held on occasion, with sumptuous banquets hosted by Gurdjieff, also known as G, as his students called him. 
At these feasts, Gurdjieff would ask people to nominate another diner as a particular type of idiot, usually after consuming alcohols, people were in vino veritas, but no one was under any illusion that the toasts were anything but another tool to observe and teach people about themselves and others. Gurdjieff also had sexual liaisons with some of his female pupils, even siring a children within a few of them. There were those who claimed he was a master of exotic tantric practices. Critics called him a charlatan, pointing to his questionable liaisons with women students. Some of the accounts that have reached us from students who studied there leave us in no doubt that Gurdjieff was a highly evolved being possessed of knowledge that ordinary men did not or could not have. Aspensky, the Russian mathematician who'd been studying with Gurdjieff since the days of Imperial Russia, once was about to storm out of the room after a disagreement and relates he heard a telepathic voice telling him to sit down again. Madame de Hartmann and her musician husband Thomas, who played Gurdjieff's compositions on the piano, fled the Russian Revolution with their teacher, lost in the forest on one occasion in a potentially perilous uh, circumstances due to the revolutionary forces about at the time. Gurdjieff and the de Hartmanns uncovered dolman and using knowledge presumably lost now in our modern era now reliant on gps gurdjieff was apparently able to use the dolman like a compass and direct them to safety a person scolded by hot water in the kitchen whose hand should have been um, seriously burnt but or scolded was instead saved by gurdjieff's quick reaction as he grabbed the wrist of the victim and plunged the wound back into the flames of the gas to effect an instant cure. American Fritz Peters, who knew Gurdjieff towards the end of his life, spoke of his time when he suffered from shell shock during the war and was deeply depressed. Gurdjieff saw him in a shattered state as a huge spark emanated from him and passed into Peters. Almost at once the American felt the joys of spring as the elderly Russian left the room. Peters became convinced that this energy transference was at the great cost to Gurdjieff, who had consciously been able to pass a massive amount of vital energy at will. Peters remarked that Gurdjieff looked drained. Bennett was one of many who had encountered the mystic, being fully convinced that Gurdjieff was in possession of secrets of self-transformation, both in theory and in practice. Although he was encouraged to stay at the Priory, money was pressing and Bennett chose to resume his career once more in England and he'd left uh, Turkey and MI5 behind. One thing is for certain though, Bennett of all people connected to Gurdjieff knew that the British authorities in India regarded the Russian as a Tsarist spy and this may have coloured their relationship slightly, although more charitable accounts suggest Gurdjieff um, used spying to facilitate access to regions otherwise out of bounds to ordinary travellers, and therefore facilitate his esoteric mission. The Silk Road at this time was a bit like the Wild West, and very unlike the life back in Western Europe. That said, destiny decreed that Bennett was not to see Mr Gurdjieff for another 25 years, the Priory lasted a decade, and its upkeep became beyond the entrepreneurial capabilities of Gurdjieff, who was forced to sell the chateau in its grounds in 1932. Gurdjieff died in 1949 in Paris. He had, until the end, been teaching, even under reduced circumstances of the war, which had interrupted his international contacts. After the war, students gathered once more. Bennett was no exception. This time his contact was more involved and intensive than previous dealings in the 20s. Chichibennett had been deeply impressed by his time with Gurdjieff and documented some of his years 
on his spiritual journey in a series of different books. The pair had discussed Sufism, but Gurdjieff was convinced that Bennett would go on to uncover more knowledge about esoteric Christianity. Out of all the Gurdjieff students who went on to promulgate his teachings, none was more tireless and devoted than Bennett, whose restless search to find the essence or font of the Fourth Way teachings was regarded as some as one of the most intensive searches of its type, involving a myriad of old and new religious practices. Some regarded Bennett as a maverick, and he drew ire of several other Gurdjieffians in his wake. Returning once more to Madame de Saltzman, the musician friend of Gurdjieff's, perhaps she was one of the more evolved who faithfully preserved what she'd learnt whilst trying not to let the teachings become distorted, but this did not help the system evolve further. Groups sprang up in Mexico, South America, USA, South Africa, Australia and of course the UK, but these were the first generational efforts. What real value they had in passing on the genuine teaching is perhaps best described by the influence of the school. Ideas are organic, they live, and they also become old and die unless supported by the energy of the originators in the conscious circle of humanity. According to some Sufi sources, the energy or baraka of a teacher dissipates upon his death. Catherine Holm, a student and friend of Gurdjieff, felt that with some justification, having worked directly with Gurdjieff in Paris, that it was not acceptable to follow a fellow student, as she said, having fed at the source. J.G. Bennett was made head of the system in England prior to the death of Gurdjieff, although the decision seemed controversial to others as Bennett was not as widely known in these circles. After all, he'd been absent for 25 years before returning. Bennett was, however, unique in that he strove to go on to find new masters that might have answers to the question of enlightenment, and after the death of his teacher Gurdjieff, he returned very much to the heartlands of Asian mysticism once more. It may be that this restless, unrelenting facet of his personality that made Gurdjieff choose him ahead of others to lead the fourth way in England into the second half of the 20th century. His approach may have been experimental and always willing to give some other time for spiritual teachers and explore their paths. This led to criticism from the more purist members of the Fourth Way who wished to keep the teachings in their original form. Bennett was adaptive in approach to the work, while others saw no need to deviate from what Gurdjieff taught them. Bennett went on to teach at Coombe Springs near Kingston-upon-Thames, which is just outside of London. He saw it as a place where people could learn about Gurdjieff's ideas, and to this end sought about publicly promoting them to reach wider audiences. His idea to find new audiences led to Gurdjieff's favourite, Jean de Saltzman in France and Jane Heap in London, to distance himself from his initiative. A clash resulted in 1955 between de Saltzman and Bennett, as the latter had started to build a nine-sided building dedicated to Gurdjieff at Coombe Springs. He wanted to use the temple to perform dances in, De Saltzman and others no longer viewed him as a bona fide teacher of the fourth way, due, they said, to his interpretation of the teachings. This spat saw traditional students of the work ostracising him, but Bennett was visionary and could not stand still for too long. As a scientist, for example, he was the first to understand the role of climate change and coal-fired emissions impacting on nature. He was clearly ahead of his time by some decades. Still yearning to meet another teacher, 
such as Gurdjieff, he started a lengthy tour of the Middle East in search of new ideas and teachers. He met Sufi Emin Cheku, who deeply impressed him, and then in 1956 encountered the spiritual practice called Subud, which we've mentioned in another episode, I believe, um, about John Bell and Payne, which you can check out. The practice, as it should be described, was first discovered by an Indonesian man called Muhammad Subodi Hadi Widi Dojo, later called Pak Subud. The exercise known as the Latihan involved opening up to higher power or life force. The Latihan was not attached to any religion, but considered to be guidance from God. Bennett was, as it said, open to Latihan and helped Catholic Benedictine monks in England induct into the practice. It was here at this point that Bennett became convinced that Islam and Christianity would one day unite. Only six years later, he'd left Subud to move on once again. He saw visits to Nepal between 1961 and 1963 to a Hindu yogi there. Bennett became convinced that he was uncovering kernels of esoteric truth, as he'd done years before in Paris and Constantinople. It was here at this time that he once again dallied with Sufism. Meeting English-educated Afghani Idris Shah in the 1960s, Bennett had connected with Sufi ideas once more. Shah was a gifted writer and uh, publisher, owning Octagon Press, that published much of the early 60s occult books. These occult connections extended to Wiccan, Gerald Gardner, and High Priestess Eleanor Bone, who were both friends of Shah. Mr Shah wrote under non-diplumes, and if nothing else, was prodigious. One such book gained notoriety, The Teachers of Gurdjieff, by Raphael Lefort in 1966. In a rather disingenuous fashion, the book claims that Lefort had managed to trace these people in a further deceit, and pointed to Idris Shah as the next possible successor to the Salmoon legacy in the West. If this was not observed enough, Shah himself built upon this deception as he persuaded uh, Bennett of his Salmoon lineage. Bennett therefore saw Shah as perhaps very indelibly linked with Gurdjieff because of this uh, so-called lineage or connection. Shah first became entangled with the fourth-way teachings of Gurdjieff in 1962 when a newspaper article surfaced announcing his contact with the monastery in Asia. Bennett, who was in the midst of his search for the origins of Gurdjieff's teaching, was introduced to Shah by an intelligence contact who recommended the Afghani as journeyman. The first impression of Shah was mixed, as Bennett was at first unsure of the English-educated Afghani, but at the end was happy to consider him in a favourable light and promote his document, which is called Declaration of the People of the Tradition. This initial meeting resulted in Bennett being persuaded by Shah as a genuine emissary of some Moon Brotherhood who possessed the secret knowledge of the inner circle of humanity. Shah visited Bennett at Coombe Springs on a weekly basis, and this process went on for several years. The Afghani's ambitions were greater than mere spiritual advancement, as he wanted to influence political and business leaders in a greater mission. The susceptible Bennett, who was concerned with growing problems facing mankind's greed, took Shah at face value and agreed to promote him within the UK. By 1965, Bennett went on to actually give Coombe Springs to Idris Shah, so he had this big house in the countryside, and he allowed him to take the building and withdrew, so effectively Shah owned it. It was, he believed, to help 
Shah continue the work of the inner circle of humanity that we've mentioned before in these little episodes, a mission that superseded that of Gurdjieff. Things did not go as Bennett planned as Shah sold Coombe Springs to developers after a few months and set up his own charitable foundation. Many think Shah acted to misinform Bennett, but the latter went on to say that despite the decision to sell off Coombe Springs and the sale being hard to bear, Bennett considered it may have been a Sufi type of decision to sever all links with the past. Critic might say that Bennett was in denial at an obvious dupe. Writer James Moore claims that, just a few years later, uh, Shah fooled Robert Graves and destroyed his academic credentials by pretending to offer up a genuine manuscript of a 12th century uh, translation of Omar Khayyam. Shah claimed that the work had been in his family for 800 years. The document turned out to be a Victorian copy and the ruse was soon spotted by publishers and translators of the genre. Graves was slated by academia for the fake work while Shah failed to deliver the original book that he claimed to have access to. Graves' wife even said that her husband had a complete faith in Shah due to their deep friendship. The scandal was nothing more than a hoax, but one at the expense of poor Graves. Whatever the case for Idris Shah and his claim to be a genuine emissary of the Samoan Brotherhood, it didn't affect his success or international reputation. He's still highly regarded to this day. The only Gurdjieffian to accept this tenuous Samoan connection was Bennett himself. Bennett, it must be said, stressed the Sufi correlation in all things Gurdjieff, believing his own work to be a continuation of the original flame kindled by the teacher. Looking once more at the fanciful account of Raphael Lefort in The Teachers of Gurdjieff, the entire work sets out to subtly undermine Gurdjieff, while at the same time keep his current followers close to the Sufi Nashbandi cause. Whether Shah and Lefort are one and the same person will never be known, but the seductive myth of higher masters' secret schools nearly saw three victims in the form of the Gurdjieff legacy, the Nashbandi Sufis themselves, and the genuine Samoan legend hijacked by ruthless ambition. The Nashbandi Sufis are directly related to the Khwajagani, which is a translation of the Masters, a Persian term directly referring to the inner circle of humanity and is applied exclusively within Sufism of Central Asia during the 10th to the 16th centuries. They are the heirs of the greatly esteemed esoteric knowledge. It is accepted within Islam that the lineage connects mankind with a higher demiurgic force governing the evolution of the planet. Nashbandi Sufism was founded by Bahadin Nashbandi, being based firmly on conscious breathing exercises to increase mindfulness. They employed these breathing techniques that increased awareness during the practice of zikr or prayers. Normally on a Thursday, as we saw from J.G. Bennett, who joined other Sufi orders on that day. Nashbandis talk about an inner life of man and give instruction or guidance on how to live by a set of principles. In 1048, Abu Yaqub Qajag Yusuf was born in Hamadan, a place in Iran. By his 35th year, Yusuf was considered a teacher and had a circle of initiates surrounding him including a Turkish master called Yasaway. Settling in Bukhara, Yusuf inherited the turban and walking stick of Salman the Persian, the first of his countrymen to convert to Islam. Salman also had connections with older Zoroastrian religions within Persia. The relics were passed to the teacher of Yusuf by Sheikh Fahmadi, 
who was a direct line of the Prophet's descendants. Yusuf became Grand Master, tolerant of all religions, and spoke of the futility of theology, preferring his connection with the Magi. The Magi priesthood, or Zoroastrian fire worshippers of Bukhara, according to J.G. Bennett. Going through this lineage, Bennett asserts there is a direct connection with the Prophet and the Nashbandi Sufis, who claim Cecilia through the Caliph Abu Bakr. The very essence of Islamic teaching, Khalida, the message of God, to whom truth or haq is conferred, is adapted from Zoroastrian constructs. Khalida is associated with the colour green and the coming of summer. Even to this day, thousands of Zoroastrians gather at a place called Pia Sabs, or Green Shrine in Yad's Iran during mid-June. The continued success of the Sufis is to avoid clashes with other more orthodox Islamic converts. It could be said that the types of methods used by the Khwaja are comparable to Zen techniques. One historical case in point underscores how leaders could be influenced without the Khwaja ever seeking their favour, and that involved the mighty Genghis Khan, the nomadic conqueror. When Genghis Khan and his warriors were sacking Bukhara, they came across a small village a few miles away, where they saw a humble weaver going about his work on his loom. Due to his apparent unconcern at the invading hordes about him, the Mongols were filled with admiration. Genghis Khan himself asked the weaver why he was able to work serenely when all about him was in mayhem. The weaver, Khwaja Arif, answered, My outer attention is on my work, my inner attention on the truth. Khwaja Araf was then invited to stay close to Genghis Khan until his death and therefore became a trusted ally and advisor. Although Genghis Khan and his golden hordes enjoy an infamous reputation among historians, it is recorded that the village of the weaver was left untouched. Genghis Khan died in 1227 and had two decades established one of the most successful and long-lasting empires the world has ever seen. Remarkably, the rule of Genghis Khan has two seemingly conflicting facets. On the first, an unrelenting colonisation. Bukhara, for example, was sacked in vengeance for the death of an ambassador, and the city levelled. Ordering exquisite torture such as pouring molten silver into the eyes and ears of one governor who rebuffed the attempts to establish trade links has not exactly enhanced their reputation from an historical viewpoint. What is seldom discussed is that once the Mongols had installed themselves as new rulers, they showed religious tolerance, rights for women, the rule of law promoting meritocracy, and for the first time over tribal affiliations. The Mongol society is therefore a socially mobile place too. The hundred men of Genghis Khan's most trusted advisers included Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, and even animist shaman. The influence of the Khwajagani, or Sufis, is unknown, but it may have attempted to safeguard and promote enlightened concepts within his military expansion. Thanks to the religious tolerance shown by Genghis Khan, Islam was able to spread via the Silk Road, and technologies were exchanged between cultures both East and West. The influence of the Sufis went into its zenith in 1526. The conquests of India by Babur gave considerable impetus to the Nashbandi order. The power and influence of the Sufis grew, albeit subtly, and probably reached its zenith 
in India during the 15th century. Nashbanding teachings bringing peace, stability, culture and enterprise in society, particularly in the Indian Punjab, where the Sufi order flourished. Their philosophy often spoke of preparing people for changes in divine intervention, the will of Allah from a higher level. Talk of saints in direct communion with angelic or demiurgic forces at work on earth. The Nashbandi certainly seemed to believe that they were part of something akin to the harmonious inner circle of humanity, the hidden hand which guides us all. With this, there is a recognition of the concept that affects history and events, perhaps not initiating them, but benignly influencing them. Take the Samung, Nashbandi, Kwajagani, harmonious circle of humanity, the hidden masters, and the idea of an esoteric centre, where those who search and attain a certain spiritual level are able to receive help from advanced beings, or, more accurately, angelic forces. Bennett certainly believed Gurdjieff's mission was connected to a larger, harmonious plan, orchestrated by a divine order. Comments made by Gurdjieff himself to a pupil, C.S. Knott, suggest that there was a greater authority that sent their representative to another pupil asked about the source of the teachings of Gurdjieff. He answered in a typically evasive response, Maybe I stole it, Gurdjieff said. The Samoon Monastery was found in at least two locations, Bennett said. The first is allegedly 12 days' trek from Bokhara by horse and donkey, and as Gurdjieff mentions, two rivers on the journey seem to point towards Tashkent. Bennett placed the destination of Gurdjieff's quest and eventual counter with the Samoon in a place called Sir Darya. Idris Shah and his supporter insist the Samung were located in Afghanistan. Writer Omar Michael Burke, possibly another non-diplume of Shah, who self-published, the Afghan Oftis thoughts in the book Among the Dervishes, published in 1973, linking the Amordari dervish order with the Samuni. Both this account and that of Martin suggest the Samun have been closed down, removing themselves to the west. Perhaps Shah again has suggested this story, uh, as it seems to follow Raphael Lefort very closely. Amateur historian Adrian Gilbert wrote in The Magi, Quest for a Secret Tradition. He believes that uh, the earliest traces of the Samun were located as Gurdjieff suggests, in northern Mesopotamia. Professor Paul Beekman-Taylor, who is Gurdjieff's grandson, although not specifically connected with his teachings as a student, knowing the mystic in his younger years through relations, says of the sources of the Fourth Way teachings, he says, It isn't all that clear to me that Gurdjieff unequivocally claimed that he'd been in Lhasa or any other part of Tibet proper. What he did claim is that he received ultra-esoteric teachings, that formed the basis of his own teachings, including the well-known dances, at an almost entirely inaccessible location somewhere in the vicinity of the Pamirs from a group called the Samung Brotherhood. They had yet another sister monastery on the northern slopes of the Himalayas called Olman Monastery. I'm not sure if he claimed to go to this Olman Monastery, but even then I am the opposite of clear when it comes to knowing where the northern slopes of the Himalayas might be. 
Unquote. Gurdjieff had mentioned acquiring knowledge in Tibet, and here Professor Beekman Taylor mentions Lhasa specifically. Gurdjieff's highly coded book, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, which he referred to as a logonomism, this is the word coined by Gurdjieff himself to describe a future message containing objective information placed within the work of art to be deciphered by initiates. In Beelzebub's Tales, a complex story alludes to the fact that the transmission of knowledge begun by both Hinduism and Buddhism in creating Lamaism, which we would know today as Tibetan Buddhism, was being prepared by the inner circle of humanity who had something uniquely important to pass on to mankind, a new messenger, due to his teachings being suited to the modern psyche. And this we are talking about the early 20th century, so a new Buddha or Mohammed or Christ would be coming. His mission directly sanctioned by the enlightened beings of the inner circle until he was unexpectedly killed by the young husband expedition in the summer 1904. If this event was not tragically destructive enough, Beelzebub's tales alludes to the looting caused by British and Sikh troops at the monasteries with the obliteration of relics, sacred texts, and other records taken relating to the inner circle's teachings. We must bear in mind at this point that Gurdjieff always had the propensity to write allegorically, and so accounts cannot always be related as factual with certainty. But in this case, it does mirror the events of the British expedition, which is named and shamed in his writings for its butchery of the pacifist Lamists. The negative effects of the young husband expedition on humanity cannot be imagined, as the transmission of three religions had stopped in its tracks, Gurdjieff lamented. In his account, Gurdjieff explains that due to the beliefs of the horrified inner circle, they wished to ensure the divine messenger Lama Ji was returned to life. It was important that what he knew as chief of the circle passed down to the other six, and, as he had not died consciously, giving those instructions, they endeavoured to restore his life, the so-called science of death, to decide one's next reincarnation, are of supreme importance to the Lamists. As the six Lamas made their connection with Lama Ji, their experiment did not go well, as they poured their energy into his body without performing the necessary connection with his soul first. As such, the result was a massive explosion a mile wide, killing all six in the process. Some, some researchers have tried to weave in the mysterious explosion at Tunguska, Siberia, 1908, into this uh, story. The Tunguska explosion, possibly a meteorite hitting the earth, caused parts of Western Europe, including London, to be bathed in a strange light in the early hours of the morning. Tunguska was said to be a thousand times more powerful than the atom bomb, leaving the forests around it devastated. The dates are four years apart, however, from the death of Lama Ji, 1904, and the occurrence of the explosion in 1908 stretches all credibility, but the Siberian connection should not wholly be dismissed, even if the above story is. An interesting article in the Epoch Times throws further clues to people connected with the Tsarist emissary Zorzhev, who went on to sign a treaty with Lhasa. Here at last we may actually glimpse one of the silhouettes of the inner circle of humanity and one of its initiates. This is the death of Lama Itigalov. It's a very strange story. I'll quote from the Epoch Times. 
the body of Hambo Lama Itikhalov, who was a spiritual leader of Russian Buddhists from 1911 to 1927, was first exhumed from the grave in 1955 at the Lama's request. When after the third exhumation in 2002, after 75 years since the Lama's death, his body still showed no signs of decay, medical experts decided to examine the miracle. The grave contained a wooden box and there was a sitting Buddhist Lama in the lotus position. His body was preserved as if it was mummified, however it was not. The body was covered with silk clothes and fabric. Samples taken 75 years after the body had been buried showed that the organics of the skin, hair and nails of the dead man aren't any different from that of a living human. That is the end of that quote. A professor of history at the Russian State University for Humanities, whose name was Galina Yashova, stated at a press conference in Interfax, central office in Mo Moscow, according to Pravda, his joints flex, the soft tissues are elastic, just like a living person, and after they opened the box where the Lama had lain for 75 years, there was a very pleasant fragrance, Yeshova was quoted as saying. His passing is an example of how Lama G may have wanted to exit this plane, rather than be machine gunned down by the British. The article innocently provides clues to the character surrounding the times of the young husband expedition, and the seriousness of their religious practices. Itikhalov formed the Buryat Brothers organization to provide humanitarian troops in World War I and was also involved in the ceremony in 1913 to honor the Romanovs as the White Tsars. He was also known to Dorzhev. As a master of Tantra, Itikhalov told his students he would die and meditated in the lotus position after a few days, the students had noticed that their teacher hadn't moved at all and therefore passed away. His last wish that his body should be exhumed 30 years on to look at his condition. Pathologist Yuri Tampalev is still investigating the mummified monk, whose elastic skin and semi-plastic blood, movable joints, defies all explanation. With no evidence of embalming chemicals, dehydration, peat bogs, it's a difficult task. Combine that with the hot summer temperatures of 40 centigrade plus, so far science has failed to offer any answer to the mystery of the preservation of this llama, let alone how he predicted such a result in the first place. Because of Itagalov's close connection with Dorshev and the Yellow Hat sect who were involved in the St. Petersburg circles, Tsar Nicholas II, etc., and was responsible for the protection of the Dalai Lama when the young husband expedition arrived, it is quite feasible that these characters that Gurdjieff himself encountered in Tibet, perhaps, and other places, this is almost certain as Gurdjieff was involved in the great game, as attested by the British colonial records in India, seen by Bennett. The question remains, were these characters involved in the inner circle of humanity, or Samung? that he spoke about in his writings and lectures. Is this mummified corpse of Itigalov historical Buddhist proof of the supernatural powers of such people? But was this first-hand evidence of the secret masters of the Himalayas? Thank you once again for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Do tune in again. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>